Hey, good morning. Let's open our Bibles, chapter 6 of Micah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Hey, little review here. Uh, Can you put it on? There we go. Uh, Anybody know what those numbers are for? Anybody have an idea? Huh? <laughs> Those are the five sections. We've been just going through this just to kind of get familiar and just a little bit of review. The five, se- five major sections of the Old Testament. Can you say those numbers with me? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. That's pretty easy, really. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? And uh, I like simple. I'm just a simple person, and if it's simple, I can sometimes grasp a hold of it. So... So the, uh, the five categories are law, five books, history, 12 books, poetry, five major prophets, five and minor prophets, 12. So it's all, breaking, it's all broken down into categories and sections, and some of them, of course, overlap into others, but we kind of have an idea where things are in the Old Testament. It's not like a mystery. We can kind of have an idea and and go there. So we're in the book of Micah, which happens to be one of the minor prophets, right, in that last section there. And uh, we've been looking at this, and we, we look at the big picture here in, the, in terms of the prophets and all these books, the major and the minor prophets, really is, is found here in Second Chronicles. It says, although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. So the, the prophets, they brought a message, and the message was the same. Now, it was obviously, we got, you know, 17 books of the prophets, right? 5, 12, remember the 5 and the 12? So it made your prophets 17 books, 17 books of this message, and the central message is to come back to God. What does that tell you? We got a problem, Houston. I say that to my grandkids. We got a problem, Houston. And you know where that's from? Yeah, of course. And, and so we have a serious problem here in the human race, and it's that, that we wander off from God, and God's message is always to come back because he wants to restore, he wants to speak to us. Now, the book of Micah, the big point, what I call the big point is Micah 6, 8, which we're going to look at a little, little bit later. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. We'll come back to that in a minute. The big hope, though, we see the first five chapters. We're in the sixth chapter now. The first chapter, a choice to listen. The second chapter, tell us what we want to hear. This is kind of where we're at. The third chapter, corruption in high places, the spiritual and the political. Chapter 4 was this glorious chapter about the millennium and and the future hope that God has set out for us. Chapter 5 kind of centers around this hope that comes from Bethlehem, that a Savior would come from Bethlehem, written some how many years before? 700. Good, good. Who had that? All right. Extra piece of cake. 
Oh, we got cake back here, by the way. Please don't drop the frosting on the carpet. That's all I ask. <laughs> Thank you for the cake, though. 700 years before he came. The Bible is full of prophecy, as there's no other book like it, which sets it apart. And really, really, the, the truth is that the faith that we're talking about, the faith in God, the Creator that sent His Son, there's no other faith that, that it even compares at all. The fact of the matter is there is only one true God, and that is the God of creation and His Son that He sent. No other book like this. And so this idea of prophecy and things that are being prophesied, the Savior from Bethlehem, that He was sent by the Father, that He was the ruler, that He was from days of eternity, that He's God the Son, that He's the Good Shepherd, that He was our peace. So the question always comes to be, have you trusted Him? If he's all that, if he really is all that, have you trusted him? I remember when, when I heard the gospel, heard the truth about this, and my, my, my uh, thinking was, God, if you really are who they say you are, then I'm going to give you a chance in my life. Now, that is, that is ignorant, okay? I understand that now. But that's all I knew. I didn't know if he was real or not, right? So I said, if you really are who those people up there, I'll tell, I'm going to give you a chance in my life. But the truth that I found out later, he was giving me a chance, right? And he gave me a chance and he gave me hope. He put stuff in my heart and my life that for 40 years now has never been, you know, he, he, he has been faithful. He has been faithful. When I've been unfaithful, he's always faithful, right? So... The question always is, have you, have you given your heart to him? Have you given him a chance? And maybe you're questioning. I don't know if he really is true. I don't know if it really is true. Have you given him a chance to prove himself to you? Because I tell you, he will, and he does. And maybe some of you know that for your own, in your own life. We didn't look at the verses, the last half of the, of the chapter 5 of Micah, but again, there's this section on the future deliverance and future victory that was coming. And now we're jumping into chapter 6, but you know, there's this glory for the future, but what about the present? You know, we can, we can think about what God has planned for us in the future, and that's wonderful, but there's still the day-to-day -day present, right? How are we living today? What's going on in our lives today? There's still that, right? We still have to think about that. And so that's what we're going to look at here in chapter 6 of Micah, the question that we're going to look at is, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? You ever ask that? God, what do you want from me? Isn't it an attitude? What do you want from me? You say that to, you know, we say that to each other, right? If you're married, you know. What do you want from me? You know, you get this attitude, right? And the thing I find is that God understands and he doesn't just, like, destroy us when we go to him with attitude. He kind of tells us the truth. And that's what we see in this chapter. We see this here. Have you any, any of you ever been to court? Any of you ever been to court? Now, I want to know why. <laughs> what were you doing in court? That's a scary thing. There was, like, over half of you. Man, I'm going somewhere else. I have never been in court. You know, they tried to sign me up for the, uh, you know, jury duty and all that, but somehow they always said, oh, you can go. 
So I've never actually had to be in court. But the rest of you, I hope it was jury duty. Seriously. But, but the thing about it is, in Micah chapter 6, there, there's like this courtroom. And it kind, of, it kind of begins with this courtroom scene. But it really is God's courtroom. And if there's a courtroom, well, I don't know. I was going to say that you want to be in. It's God's courtroom because it's based completely and totally on truth. But then again, I don't know. Maybe we don't want to be in God's courtroom because we think we want to get away with something, right? Where if we just kind of twist it a little bit and, and uh, maybe it'll go our way. But this Micah chapter 6 starts with this courtroom scene. Look at, let's read verses 1 and 2. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people, and he's lodging a charge against Israel. He starts off and he says that we need to listen. Listen to what the Lord says. There's a lot of voices in this world, aren't there? A lot of people vying for your attention. A lot of media things going on now. We have all the computer stuff. There's a lot of things that want our attention, but he says, listen to what Yahweh, the Lord says, that's what we need to, who we really need to hear from. And so if we're in his courtroom at all, and he's the judge, we need to listen. Like usually you listen, if the judge is going to say something, you've got to listen carefully, right? If you all have been there, you'll know that when the judge says something, the lawyers get up and they do all their stuff. But really when the judge finally says, hey, this is what, this is where we're going with this thing, you've got to listen up. So we have the judge who is, the ultimate judge, and it says here to listen to what he has to say. He's kind of in this courtroom thing, and, and, and you know, it's when you read it and look at it, he talks about the mountains, he talks about the hills, he talks about the everlasting foundations of the, of the earth. It's kind of like he's, he's speaking, and, and it's, it's kind of like all-inclusive. In other words, the heavens and the earth are like witnesses. Now this is this is how this is how big and you know our God is. It isn't what some little tiny courtroom somewhere, but this is in all of creation. God is the judge. God is the one that we have to deal with. And what does he say? He says he has a case. He has a case against his people. Now do you think his case is going to get thrown out? How many of your cases got thrown out? No, don't raise your hands. <laughs> How many, when, when he has a case, and literally it does mean this, a lawsuit or litigation, if he has a case, it's going to stand. He's lodging a charge against Israel, and, and, and again, not just Israel, but the things that are found in the Word, they apply to us too, they apply to me. Isaiah, who was, again, a contemporary of this prophet Micah, he said this, he said, or it says in, Mike, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. Again, the heavens and the earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. They have rebelled against me. That's the case that he has. Again, why were the prophets sent? To bring 
the people back to him. Why? Because they rebelled. They turned away. They went to do their own thing. And that's where you and I, can you and I relate to that? Uh, have we ever done that? Do we ever rebel? Do we ever walk away? Do we ever turn away to try to do our own thing? Look at verse 3. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He says, he says basically this, you know, despite all that they done, that they had done and rebelled, he, he starts off by saying this, my people. I, think, I find encouragement in that. So, we, so he has a case against his people, but he still calls them my people. He has a case that, against them, but he still calls them my people. So it's like for you and I, he never gives up on you or I. If we are one of his, we're one of his. We're always going to be one of his. And he's not going to say, well, you went too far this time. You're not one of mine any longer. Isn't that encouraging? And I, one of my favorite verses, Philippians chapter 1, in verse 6, he says, you know, what he started... You know, he began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He started this thing in me, and he's going to finish it. That's exciting. That's encouraging. So when you're looking, you know, you're on the ground, and you're looking up, and you're going, wow, I've really messed up this time. He's going to continue what he started. He's still, you're still one of his children, one of his people. But he goes on from there, and, he, and, and God always is going to speak the truth, right? He is the God of truth. He's going to tell you the truth no matter what, right? He's not going to uh, sugarcoat it. He says, listen to you, what, what have I done to you? It's like, we think we have a case against him. Do we have any case against him? Will we ever have any case against him? Like Job, you know, hey, I've got this case against you. And Job, in the, in the end, he gets flat and he says, oh, wow, I didn't know what in the world I was talking about. What have I done to you? Look at all the things that I have done for you, in other words, he's saying there. And then he lists them in verses 4 and 5. You know, all the things that, that he had done for them. He brought them out of Egypt. He redeemed them from slavery. He sent them leaders. And when this king wanted Balaam to curse the people, what did he do? He turned it into blessings. He wasn't actually enabled to curse them because he took care of them. After all that he had done for them, and they had this attitude, right? After all he's done for you and me, do we ever treat him badly? Probably sometimes. I think it's not even so much that we treat him treat him badly, it's just that we ignore him. We kind of just go on our lives, go on our way, and we act like he's not even there. After all that he's done for me, I could just kind of ignore him. and That's kind of what we do. 
It really is, uh, I was thinking about this, it's like a poor memory. He says there in, in the last part of verse 5, he says, remember your journey. Remember what he's done. He took him from this one place to the other place, and, and, and one, the first city is on this side of the Jordan, and the other one is in the promised land. He brought them over. He brought them into the promised land. Remember, think about what God has done for you. Think about, you know, it's a bad memory that we have. Any of you have memory problems? I can't remember. Hmm. And we have no gratitude, you know. Have no gratitude. And that's what they were doing here. You know, what are you people doing? What, what is going on that you would actually do like this? Why are you going so far away from me? Look, remember, think. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, with what? This is the people speaking now. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I don't know about you, but when I read that, when I think about what they're saying here, I'm seeing more attitude. That's what I'm seeing. You know, what do you want? You want burnt offerings? You want thousands of burnt offerings? Do you want rivers, 10,000 rivers of oil? You know, I'll do all this stuff, sure. What, do you, what is it that you want? What do you want from me? You want me to offer my firstborn? But when you think about the things that, he, that they're saying here, these are all kind of like external things, right? These are the religious formalities, and they're prescribed in the law except what? Except the children. Yeah, it's actually forbidden. It was ne- they were never to offer their own children as sacrifice. That's what the pagans, that's what the false worshipers were doing. They were offering their children. And, and, and they were sucking in the people of Israel to do the same thing. And you read about it. It says they went ahead and did the same thing that, that these false worshipers were doing. The truth is that they have no clue. They had no clue what it was that God was wanting. I have to say that that is me sometimes. Sometimes I have no clue. But what we tend to do and what they were doing is is they kind of make it this religion, right? Well, if I just do these certain things. And is that what God wants? If I just do these certain things. If I just bring the sacrifices, if I just, you know, show up at church, if I give the money, if I, you know, even uh, show up to serve in some way, if I, you know, say a certain number of prayers, if I get baptized in a certain way at a certain time in a certain way, is that all it is? You know, if that's all it is, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. I want you, there's a few verses I want to look at because this is so important because especially I think the way we've been raised. First Samuel, turn back, 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 back. First Samuel chapter 15. 
1 Samuel chapter 15. So that's in the book, in the section of what? History, right. So, you got to go way, way back before the poetry. So you have law, history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets. 1 Samuel chapter 15. What does he say? This is a powerful verse. If I can find it. 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, and he's speaking about what Saul had done. Saul had, you know, uh, says he forced himself to bring this sacrifice when he really wasn't supposed to be doing that. But Samuel replied, he says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. You could bring all the sacrifices you want, but if there's no obedience in the heart, he says, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. He's speaking to Saul again there. Saul thought if I just did, did these certain external things, but his heart wasn't in the right place. It always gets back to our hearts. You know that, right? It always gets back to what's inside of us. Religion or obedience, he says there. One more. Let's go to the uh, Psalm 51 uh, on this same thought here. So in the books of poetry, right? Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 51 is the psalm of repentance of who? of David, of David when he sinned with Bathsheba and finally he got confronted. He was trying to hide it, right, for a while. We do that. And, but finally God said, listen, the truth's coming out. The truth will find you out. The Bible tells us the truth will always come out. And he, confront, he got confronted and finally he repented. And this is his psalm of repentance. We're only going to look at two verses here. But notice what he says here uh, in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. He says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. I thought God asks them, asked them in the, in the law to bring sacrifices, didn't he? I want you to bring sacrifices, burnt offerings, sin offerings, you know, all fellowship offerings, all these different kinds of... Isn't that what he wanted? Isn't that what God wants? It's deeper than that, though, isn't it? It's deeper than that. And, and those things, they mean something. It's what they mean. It's not just the doing of that particular sacrifice or offering. In verse 17, this is a powerful verse. The sacrifices of God are at what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's the sacrifices of God. That's what God wants, a broken and contrite heart. What does he say in the, in the Beatitudes? Jesus said, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He starts off with the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Now, 
If the heart is right, he goes on, you'll notice in verse 19, he talks about righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, and bulls offered on the altar. So he wasn't saying you don't ever do those things, right? But if the heart isn't in the right place, he says, I don't, there's no delight in those. They're just rituals. How many of you grew up with rituals, spiritual, religious rituals? It's not what God wants. What does God want for me? He wants my heart. He wants a broken and contrite heart before Him. Let's turn back to Micah chapter 6. And we're at verse 8. What does God want from me? Well, the thing is, He tells us what He wants. See, God doesn't say, well, you know, Uh, you figure it out, see if you can figure it out. That's where we get in trouble, right? When we think, I'm going to figure it out, and and that's why we have all these false religions and all this idolatry and all this stuff, because people, they just go with whatever they think is the, the way to go. They just come up with some idea of their own. And... But he's made it very clear. What what is it that God wants? Well, we just read it in Isaiah 51, right? He wants a broken and contrite heart. That's what he wants. But Micah has the uh, another, uh, you know, a verse here that tells us also that God's not keeping us in the dark. And what does it say there in verse 8? It says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want? from you and from me. He says it right there, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He's made it so clear. Look at what he says there. He said he has showed you in the past. He's already made it clear. He's already told us. You know, so many times we, we, we have questions. Well, I, I don't know what God wants me to do, right? I'm not sure about it. And yet it's something that's been spelled out so very clearly. I'm not sure if I should cheat on my taxes. I'm not sure if I should move in with my girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm not sure if uh, it's okay for me to go and do this particular thing. And it's spelled out clearly in what the Bible says, the Bible teaches. He has showed us what's right and wrong. The, the, The guideline for what's right and wrong is not what I think is right, or wrong. That's relativism. That's humanism, right? Where I decide, well, if it's right for me, it's right. If it's right for you, then it's right for you. But they may not be the same thing, but the Bible says, no, there's a, there's a standard of right and wrong. He has showed us, and He's given it to us. He's made it clear. He showed us what's good. But the Bible tells us that what do we do? We call evil good and good evil. We get all, we're all over the map. We call evil good and good evil. If we want to know what good is, where do we go? We go to Him. We go to His Word, right? What does He want? So what does He say here? We'll just look at these three things uh, before we finish this morning. The first thing He says there is to act justly. What does God want from me? To act justly. What does that mean? To obey, to do the right thing, to... Just, to do what's just. Just means right. Just means what's fair. We, we hear this term, you know, social justice, kind of a, a popular term around different circles or whatever. And there, there's nothing wrong with that because he's saying it. 
to act justly. Now, we, we, we kind of leave out, those in that camp can kind of leave out the spiritual aspects and, and what it means to have a relationship with God and we're just doing social things. But it's, it's much more than just doing something for somebody else. It's doing what is right, doing the right thing because it's right. Not to earn favor. Isaiah, again, in chapter 1, he said, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Learn to do what's right. To act justly. You could also say, you know, it has to do with how we live. You could say that too. How we live. How do we live our lives? You know, I'm reading in the book of Romans, you know, and, and, and Paul is making this huge case, right? And it's like so deep. And I like reading and go like, wow, that is so deep. I can't even like, like totally understand what, how deep it is. And yet sometimes Paul can say, this is how simple it is. But in, in Romans, you know, he's talking about, you know, that it's the grace of God through faith. It's, 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 it's totally grace. But then he says, you know, but, but shall we sin so that grace may abound? Because it's all by grace. I'm saved by grace, not by what I do. Yes, that's true. But what does he say? He says, God forbid that we would ever do that. By no means would we ever do that. Because then we become slaves to what we offer ourselves to. To act justly, to do the right thing, to live right before God. One person said this, living with a sense of right and wrong. David Guzik said, acting in a fair way toward others. That's interesting, isn't it? Are we doing the right thing? Are we living right? Are we treating people fairly? Are we just doing the religious things? Are we doing the right thing? Are we, are we living fair with people? You know, we have uh, some new neighbors that just moved in next door to us and... and uh, they decided they're going to put up a fence, right? Because our houses are actually pretty close together. And, uh, but we got along so well with our previous neighbor, it was never an issue, and she wasn't there that much or whatever. But, and I can understand wanting a fence, okay? And he's paying for it, okay? But, but you know, there was a question about, well, where is this fence going to go, right? What's the right thing? And I, you know... And so, you know, we were out there and, and, you know, first they said they were going to have it over there. And we said, okay, well, that's fine, whatever. But the line was really over here. And when the guy came and, and he said, well, but the line's over here. I want it over here. And the guy, I think the guy that was doing it didn't understand. There was a communication problem. And so he, when he was there, we went out and said, well, yeah, here it is. And I said, yeah, well, this is where it is. This is, this is where it should be, right? This is the right thing to do. Now, I would have liked it to be over in the other place, further away from me. But what's the right thing? Right? What's going to come back on you in the end? If you're doing the right thing, it's not going to come back on you. If, if you're kind of twisting and, and manipulating and, and, and uh, not being fair, it's going to come back. It always does. What's the right thing to do? Act justly. What, what does God want me to do? He wants me to live right. And do the right thing in this life. People are watching. People are wondering, like, what's so-and-so going to do? How's he going to deal with that? 
The second thing is to love mercy, right? And this word is translated as loving kindness, but it really the, the concept of mercy that I've always uh, thought about is not getting what we deserve, right? Grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And that you, could, you could see the loving kindness that, that God is, you know, He's not going to give us what we deserve and He's, he's, he's going to be loving and kind towards us. It's His mercy. And His mercies are new every morning. And so He says here that we should love mercy. God is a God of mercy, we know that. But we should love mercy, but so often what is it? We do not want the other guy to get the mercy, Right? We'd like them to get what? Boom. Yeah, what they deserve. But did we get what we deserved? I didn't get what I deserved, that's for sure. And so to love mercy, to be actually applying that to other people, and not only, and like someone said here, you know, not just to, not just to think about or show mercy, but to love to show mercy. To love to show mercy. Why? Because God has been merciful to us. God is a merciful God. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't ever speak the truth to people and, and God's word. We've been saying this. God's word, God's word gives us the truth. But again, one of the other Beatitudes says what? Blessed are the merciful. Why? Or they'll be shown mercy. When we are merciful to other people, it comes back to us. When we're judgmental, when we're, you know, stiff and harsh, it's coming back to us to do. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we don't speak the truth because we need to. I got plenty of situations in my own life dealing with people and I need to speak the truth, but to also love mercy, that, that the mercy of God. I've received it and you receive it. Love mercy. Is that always easy to do? Not always, especially if somebody's done something to me or to you. To love mercy even when it's something against you. See, forgiveness is kind of part of this. This whole idea of forgiveness, you know. I believe the Bible teaches that forgiveness is one of the most powerful things on the planet. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiving others for what they've done. Not wanting judgment upon them. Now again, it doesn't mean that, you know, and we're going to look at this in the next section of chapter 6, that there is a sense that we will always reap what we sow. But for you and I to, to, to be willing to forgive and to show mercy... What do they say? I don't remember the exact quote, you know, where we find out that the, you know, when we're, when we're unforgiving, who gets hurt in the end? Me, right? When I'm not willing to forgive, I'm the one that holds on to it. I'm the one that gets to carry that around. So to act justly, to love mercy, and the last one, maybe the most important one is to what? Walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. He's talking about a walk with God. He's talking about a relationship with God. Uh, 
one of the one of the most incredible verses found in Genesis about a guy named Enoch. You remember that verse? Some of you have read it. Some of you heard it. What does it say about Enoch? It says he he walked with God for how long? Three hundred years he walked with God, and then what happened? God took him. But he walked with God 300 years. Do you think there's any humility in Enoch's life? He walked humbly with his God. He didn't walk with God in any kind of a proud way. He walked humbly with God. The opposite of humility is pride for sure. We're going to end with two different verses. First one found in Isaiah. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. And then we're going to... And then we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke after that. So Isaiah 57, in verse 15. Again, what does God want from me? He wants me to walk humbly before Him because pride is a killer. Pride is the number one sin. Pride keeps us from, from, from Him. But look what he says in verse 15. He says, For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. He says, I live in a high and holy place. He's talking about how incredible he is, how uh, amazing. Chris talked about it in worship this morning. By the way, wasn't that worship good? That was awesome. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that sweet? This is the Almighty God, but yet He condescends to human beings like you and me when we're in this place of being contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart. You want to know where revival starts? It, it, It starts where we humble ourselves before Him. Revival isn't, you know, like, you know, jumping around like, you know, whatever. Revival is, is coming when we're, when we're on our face before Him. One, one last verse, as I said, Luke chapter 18. Let's turn there. We'll finish with, that, with those verses. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. What does God want from me? He wants me to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. To walk humbly with Him. Verse 9, he says, To some who are confident, and when we're reading this, see where you fit in. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisees were the religious leaders, right? They were all about the religion. And the other a tax collector, people didn't like them for obvious reasons. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about, and you could also translate it places to himself. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus concludes, he says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified for God before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He says we, we should be walking humbly with our God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, he loved mercy, this guy here. He knew, he knew himself. He knew God. But we just read it in Isaiah that God would meet him in that place. God met that man. It's a parable, but a, a, a man who's like that. He met him in that low, place of a lowly and contrite spirit, a lowly and contrite heart. I've always, I've always believed this, that the way up is down. The way up is down. He says, who, he who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to find the way up? The way up is down. God's math is different than ours. You know, it's like, it's like you, I remember in school hearing about the new math. And then they got rid of that and got something, some other kind of math and some other kind of math. God's math is the right math. The way up is down. He who humbles himself would be exalted. So what does God want from me? Well, that's he tells us. He wants us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before him. So when you and I are tempted to say, God, I don't know what you want, turn back to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. See if you can apply it in your situation, in your life. If you don't know the answer, Maybe you need to stop and pray and, and, and bow before him and say, God, I don't know the answer. Maybe you just need to do what's right. Maybe it's uh, dealing with another person. You need to just be merciful, to show mercy to them instead of, you know, the, the hammer. What does God want from me? He tells us. Let's pray together, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. It's it's so awesome, so incredible, but it's also challenging. It's hard. But what you ask us to do, you always give us the strength and the ability to do. You, you, ask, you ask us to act justly, you'll help us to do that. You ask us to love mercy, you've given us your mercy, you've showed us what mercy is. You'll pour it out in, into our hearts and lives. You've asked us to walk humbly and and you've made it easy to humble ourselves before you because you love us so much. How could we not humble ourselves before you? Well, it's our pride. We know that. It's our own pride, our own arrogance. Father, we're just sinners, and we come like that tax collector did, and we say, God, be merciful to us. Sinner but a sinner saved by grace, a sinner redeemed. And as you said to those people of Israel that you brought them out, you brought them in, you redeemed them, you protected them, you gave them leaders, you gave them everything they needed. 
And you're still doing the same thing today for us, Lord. We thank you for that. Father, I pray this morning as well for any who have never given you a place, a chance in their lives and heart. Maybe that's you this morning as we, as we conclude. You could pray and you could ask Jesus to, to come into your life and heart. And you can do that right now with me and simply say and pray with your own heart. Dear Jesus, I, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. And I ask you to come into my life. And I want to give you a chance to show yourself to me that I might know and understand, that I might be forgiven, that I might have eternal life. Help me, Lord. I I surrender and I, I humble myself before you today. In Jesus' name, amen.